So, Squirrel will say something about it. Yeah, sure. he will. He will. Uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Monday. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope your day at church yesterday was edifying and that you had a good time, got heard a good message, got to worship with the saints, uh, all that good stuff. Uh, And it is Monday, January 23rd, 2023. This is Squirrel Chatter. Squirrel Chatter is a podcast dedicated to scripture, history, theology, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about, which is very germane because it is Monday. That means it's Monday meandering, so I've got just a few topics I want to talk about today. Squirrel Chatter webcasts every day at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch, so you can watch the live cast there. And then the podcast is available for download wherever you listen to fine podcasts. And we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com and check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. All right, well, let's begin, as is our practice, with the Prayer of Confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And then we are reading on Mondays and Fridays from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. Our reading today is Symbols from Jesus' Baptism, and the text associated with it is Matthew 3.15a, which reads, Jesus Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Dr. MacArthur writes, The most important symbol Jesus' baptism gives us is a perfect example of obedience to God the Father. Our Lord always modeled obedience in all things. See Philippians 2, 6-8 and Matthew 17, 25-27. In submitting to baptism, Jesus affirmed the validity of John's standard of righteousness and demonstrated that baptism was God's will to which every believer should be obedient. Furthermore, Jesus' baptism is a profound, symbolic identification with sinful humanity. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah stated that the Messiah was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. 
It's Isaiah 53:12. The sinless one took his place among sinners, and that in part entailed submitting himself to a sinner's baptism. Finally, Jesus' baptism is a symbol of his death and resurrection, and therefore a prefigurement of our Christian baptism. Concerning his death, Jesus later said, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished, Luke 12:50. In pointing to his obedient identification with sinners, Isaiah 53:11, 2 Corinthians 5:21, and his subsequent ato- subsequent atoning death and bodily resurrection, the key symbols stemming from Jesus' baptism remind believers of their need to faithfully obey and be baptized. Ask yourself, he became one of us, identifying with our sin, marveling again at the amazement and immensity of this truth. Marvel again at the amazement and immensity of this truth. What grace, what humility, what kind of worship should flow from this reality? Worship him today as the one who was not ashamed to take your place, who stooped down so that you could stand. And that is Dr. MacArthur's devotion for today. And just so you know, it's not the one for today. <laughs> if, you were, if you're using this devotional as your daily devotional, um, this is the 23rd day of that devotion. We just read, I think, the fifth day. <laughs> so we, we just finished like the first week. But uh, because we're, we're doing it in order, but we're only reading it on Mondays and Fridays. So two days a week instead of seven so if you're using this devotional, you're way ahead of us. Um, and the Grace to You website, uh, gty.org, they have in the devotional section several of Dr. MacArthur's daily devotions, including this one. And uh, you can go to the, the website and, and search for the devotional. It's a tab at the top, says devotionals, and open that up. And it has... Several you can choose from, including the MacArthur Daily Bible, if you're looking for a Bible reading plan other than the five-day reading plan that that, uh, I have linked to. Um, So that's just uh, another one of these uh, things that are available to you to help you in your Christian walk. There's plenty of resources out there. Avail yourself of them. Good, solid, doctrinally sound resources that you can trust. Um, Grace to You, Ligonier, Founders, uh, G3. You're going to find good, solid material at, at those sites. And I'm sure they're not the only ones, but they're the ones that I frequently visit. And so I would commend them to you and, and uh, point you in that direction for good, solid material that will help you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. All right, Monday Meanderings. I was thinking this weekend, I was watching another one of those things that popped up. It was sometime on Saturday. This video popped up of a young lady being removed from an aircraft for misbehaving. I won't link to the video. There's language in it. Um, but this this young woman draped in a rainbow... The, the, the people on the plane were mocking her and calling her Rainbow Girl. She had like a, a 
LGBTQ plus plus ING whatever. Um, she was draped in this rainbow shawl kind of thing. And uh, I don't know what precipitated her being removed from the plane, but she was mouthing off as she was being removed. And it just, it struck me, this video is not alone. Um, especially since 2020 and the COVID shutdown. I've noticed a huge increase in these videos of people behaving badly. And my mom used to always use a phrase when she would rebuke me for my behavior. She would always say, that is not acceptable in a polite society. That You're supposed to be kind. You're not supposed to be rude. You're not supposed to be disruptive. These things are not polite. And the, the, a, a big crime in my mom's book was being impolite and not being uh, someone who uh, follows the rules of polite society. So that phrase, polite society, has been in my mind from the earliest days of my youth. And so since 2020, we've seen this explosion of videos of um, you know, busybodies going after folks in public places about wearing masks, about not wearing masks, about, you know, it just the whole mass COVID lockdown thing. Um, and then videos um, of miscreants on airplanes <laughs> has been a high percentage of these videos. And then the videos of, of you know, restaurants being trashed and people just being impolite, to, to use that phrase. And so I was wondering, have we gotten less polite? And I believe that we have. Now, in, a, in some ways, it's the fact that there is the now ever-present smartphone video camera so that everything that happens now is being documented where even just 10, 12 years ago, that was not happening. Um, I mean, you know, it was somewhere in the, the early 2000s, even before regular cell phones got cameras and I don't believe they could shoot video. They might have been able to, but I'm not sure. I don't remember. I'm not sure if mine could shoot video or not. I never did. Um, but, of course, now with smartphones, everybody can shoot video um, with very high-quality camera lenses and pretty good sound. And so a lot of things that may have always, already been pleasant or always been present are now being documented. Um, as an aside, the longer smartphones are in existence, the less confident I feel that, that, uh, Bigfoot exists because, um, uh, it's also the, the thing, you know, the, the miracle accounts coming out of, uh, certain prosperity churches hold less and less, uh, 
uh, viability as uh, we hear that, you know, the such and such church's youth group was walking on water. Oh, yeah, where's the cell phone video? Let's see it. It's not there because it didn't happen. Um, but so cell phone videos are, are ever present. So we're seeing the misbehavior on the airplanes. We're seeing the people getting kicked off. And a lot of this, I'm sure, was happening before the videos showed up. But at the same time, yes, our society is becoming less polite. And I think that comes from our fact that our society is becoming more and more self-centered. And, and this is the, you know, the great, uh, I didn't look it up, but uh, Paul's letter to Timothy talking about how people in the last day, and he loves themselves, you know, and, and in the one sense, the last days began with the first coming of Christ meaning that this is the last stage of history before the end. But at the, at the same time, we're much later in the last days than we were 10, 20, or 1,000 years ago. So, you know, the, we're, we're in the last of the last days, <laughs> the more la laster days. <laughs> and, and so we see, you know, this self-centered rude um, demeanor taking over much of our society. Um, and it's a shame. I noticed it just as a, a personal anecdote when I started substitute teaching at the junior high and high school. When I was a student, and I'm coming up next, the uh, 2024 is going to be my 40th high school reunion. I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to seeing a lot of the people. Um, but, you know, so 40 years ago, I was in high school. And we would not have talked over a teacher. It just wouldn't have happened. Teacher starts talking, everybody in the class shuts up and listens. Whether you like the teacher or not, you just didn't talk over them. And it didn't matter, you know, if it was the regular teacher or the sub-teacher. Matter of fact, you were more frightened of the sub-teacher because you would get in a lot more trouble for disobeying a, sub, a substitute teacher than for the regular teacher. Because the regular teacher, you knew them, you knew what you could get away with, you, you know, you had a rapport with the regular teachers. But the substitute teachers, they did not want you mistreating in any way. And so you and you would get in a lot of trouble for causing trouble in class with a substitute teacher present. That was just the way of it. And so when I started substitute teaching, it took great effort to get the class to be quiet and pay attention. And when I was in school, we wouldn't have behaved like that. Um, just yesterday at church, I was talking to a former schoolmate who's now a police officer, and he was talking about an incident recently at one of the high schools in Missoula. And we were talking about that, and they had, they, had, they ended up uh, shooting tear gas 
into the student's car. I think it was a student. The, the person at the high school that was causing the problem. I think it was one of the students. Um, but don't hold me to that because I'm not sure. But they ended up shooting tear gas into the car to get the person to, to come out and, and surrender. And, you know, we were talking about the fact that when we were in high school, because we were in high school together, he's, he's, I think, two years ahead of me. His little sister and I were in the same class. Um, when we were in high school, because we all had pickup trucks with, with uh, gun racks in the back window. Half of them were unlocked. <laughs> we didn't lock our cars in the parking lot. Um, different time, different time. But there was never any concern about a school shooting or anything like that. That nobody was nobody was the least bit worried about that. I remember I had a a four door car, and I had. They were popular at the time. It was a an Indian blanket seat cover that covered his, you know, full bench seat in an old 70s four-door. I had a, a 72 Mercury Montego that had been my sister's. And then I ended up with it because um, she got a new, a new car and I bought that one off of her. But um, that, that big... Big Mercury, big V8. Yeah. Oh, those cars were great. It's one of those things. I wish I still had some of these cars. I, I used to have a 67 Chevy Caprice. Fantastic car. You know, big, heavy, metal. We would go to, you know, we'd have, you know, I'm not a small guy, and I had friends that were every bit as big. And we would go to the drive-in movie in my car and two or three of us would sit on the hood of the car and lean back against the windshield to watch the movie on a hot summer night. And we were not worried about denting the hood because <laughs> it was heavy steel. Uh, I don't know what those cars weighed, but I mean, it was, it was a battleship. It was an armored vehicle. They're big, heavy body panels, and, and they were just tough, stout vehicles. Nowadays, you you lean against the fender, and you'll put a you know do a thousand dollars in damage. Um, I had a deer in uh, uh, a vehicle not too long ago, and they had to replace. Now I was, I had slowed down enough, airbag didn't go off. Saw the deer coming. I was going on the highway, so I was doing, you know, 70. Um, saw the deer coming. Slowed way, 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 way down. But was not able to stop. It was winter. Was not able to stop, and I hit the deer. Deer, you know, knocked the deer down. It jumped up and ran off. The airbag didn't deploy. Nothing. I mean, everything was fine as far as that. Um the plastic grill shattered and went into a million pieces, but the radiator was fine. But it, it crumpled the driver's side fender and the, the hood had crumpled from the impact. 
And so took it to the body shop, and it was like almost $2,000 worth of damage. Because, as the body shop owner um, explained to me, the metal on the body panels is so thin that, for the most part, they can't remove dents. It's like trying to straighten out a piece of tin foil. It just doesn't work. And so, anymore, it's just, yep, new hood, new fender. And new grill, you know, and it was like I said, two thousand dollars, because they're they're not stout like they were then. Anyway, get back to this. I had this the, these Indian blanket seat covers where the it was it was a it was a green car and it was a green and yellow Indian blanket seat cover, and in the front of the seat cover down under your knees. It had a full-length sleeve that ran across the front of the, the bench that was designed for a rifle. And you just had a rifle slid in front of that seat. And nine times out of ten, I had a rifle in there. Because that we, we all had guns with us. It wasn't like we're you know, packing in school, but we all had a rifle in our pickup truck. Or in our in our cars, because we'd go hunting or shooting after school. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't against the rules. Um, nobody was worried about it. Like I said, nobody thought there would be any incidents at all. And yet, nowadays, with school shootings, uh, you know, all the it, it's we've we've the problem isn't guns. The problem is there's something wrong with society. It's less polite. It's more self-centered. And I think a lot of it is godlessness, just flat out. So, but we're seeing that. Another thing is, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision. And... Of course, last June it was overturned, but, you know, yesterday was Sanctity of Life Sunday, and overturning Roe v. Wade did not outlaw abortion in the United States, and so we need to keep working to protect the life of the unborn. But one of the things that, that I found to be really interesting, I, I looked at several speeches, Vice President Harris and a few others, in from the left recognizing the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade and lamenting the fact that it's been overturned. And so they are totally up in arms to try to get abortion rights, rights being in quotes, um, established nationwide once again. And we have to hope that that doesn't happen. But it might. Um, the fact of the matter is that, that, you know, the Republican Party, while officially anti-abortion, is not as strongly anti-abortion as we might wish. And we see those instances... Uh, in the voting patterns of certain members of Congress and 
one interesting thing, and somebody pointed this out last week that, that I noted, the things that the Republican-run House of Representatives is championing right now are very conservative things that have no possibility of passing. They won't get past the Senate, and if they did, the White House wouldn't sign them. The, 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 the Republican-owned House, Republican-run House, is in a position to prevent legislation from passing, but it's not in a position to get legislation passed because it's only one branch of government and, and you know, without the, it's only one of the two houses of the Congress and without the other house and without the White House, none of these conservative bills are going to see the light of day. So in a, in a way, the fact that they're being voted on in the House is PR. Um, but what we have seen in the past is you will have a minority-run, you know, I mean, the, the, the minority party runs the House. The majority party is running the Senate and the White House, right? I mean, in the general scheme of things, the Republican Party only has the one House and isn't able to get anything done. When the Republican Party has the ability to get things done, they have the House and the Senate and the White House, as they did just four short years ago. They don't put this sort of stuff through. They don't even talk about it. So you wonder how much of this is posturing, how much of this is propaganda, how much of this is appeasing the base, because when they have the opportunity to actually do it, they don't take that opportunity. Um, key example, John McCain. And I'm not detracting from his war record or anything like that when I... Get on John McCain, I'm talking purely about his politics over the years in Washington. Um, but John McCain, when he last ran for the Senate before he died, one of his big issues was overturning Obamacare. You got to send me back to the Senate. The Republicans have to control the Senate so that the Republicans can overturn Obamacare. That was one of the talking points of his campaign. That was one of his campaign promises. When the time came to overturn Obamacare, John McCain basically got off his deathbed, flew to Washington to pass, the, to, to cast his vote against overturning Obamacare. And he's not alone in saying conservative things, but not governing in a conservative way. And so we see that. So when we think about, you know, will a law be passed legalizing the murder of unborn infants nationwide? It could. 
It could, you know, even even by the Republicans, I don't necessarily trust them. But we've had a couple of instances in the sports world this last couple of weeks that that need to be commented on here as well. Think back just a few weeks to that Monday night game when the the Buffalo Bills player um, got injured, and I can't remember his name. I'm horrible with names. Um, uh, If I don't write it down, I can't remember it. But we all watched, and it was it was a you know sad and shocking deal that here's this young man laying on the field receiving CPR and being defibrillated before being transferred to a hospital, and he almost almost died there on the field, and and apparently he was at the game yesterday uh, to watch the watch his team. They lost, but he was there to to cheer them on which is kind of a neat thing. So, I mean, he is recovering from this. But, you know, we were all concerned. And you had the football teams openly kneeling on the field and praying. You had sportscasters praying on air. Yeah, these things just sound remarkable. So just a few weeks ago, Prayer to God for his aid was acceptable again. And the reason it was was because when things like this happen, we realize that we're powerless. Yeah. And so it, it drives people, you know, even unbelievers to their knees to plead with God. But there are true Christians in the sports world. One of those is Tony Dungy, famed coach. Um, He's now a sportscaster. Well, it came out that he was going to, and I believe they held the march on Saturday, he was going to participate in the March for Life. Um, He is a strong Christian. I don't know him, but I know people who know him, and they're like, yeah, he's the real deal. And so I respect that, and I respect him. And he stood up and, you know, was taking a stand for his beliefs. Now, he wasn't, you know, using his sportscaster job to promote his positions. It just came out that he was going to be at the, the March for Life. And the left went crazy. There are people trying to get him fired. From his job at, I, I don't remember what network he's on, um, but you know, I, I see him every weekend calling football games or doing pregame shows um, as I switch between the networks for the different games. I just don't remember who's where. So, it, uh, you know, I, I don't pay attention to those things. But, um, but I know he's, you know, doing football analysis and stuff, but he wasn't using his football analysis job to try to push his personal beliefs on anybody. It just came out that he was anti-abortion and he was going to be at the March for Life. And so people are trying to get him fired from his job. And they're talking about how horrible this is, that he would actually have an opinion contrary to the opinion of the elite. Well, 
that's just sad. Another incident that happened this same week is a Philadelphia Flyers hockey player, Ivan Provorov. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's Russian. And he is, you know, obviously from that, <laughs> that last name, he's not Swedish. Um, he's, you know, a Russian hockey player. I believe he's a, an American of Russian descent. I'm not sure. I don't know. He might be from Russia. But he is a member of the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, doctrinal differences aside, and it's actually hard to know exactly how you differ doctrinally from Eastern Orthodox churches, because it's hard to pin them down on doctrine. <laughs> it, it's hard to get the Eastern Orthodox to say exactly what they believe. They're, they're, they're kind of jello in that way. Um, so it's, I'll just leave that there. So I don't know, honestly do not know this man's status before Christ, but he is religious. And he holds to the teachings of his church, including the teachings of the Russian Orthodox Church on homosexuality. Well, he refused to take part in Philadelphia Flyers pregame Pride Night festivities. And I guess he did not wear a rainbow pride jersey during warm-ups and you know i don't think they warmed during the game but they were there was a warm-up jersey and it was pride night and and all of this and he did not take part in that well he has been castigated by the left for being you know a hate-filled nazi who wants to murder all gay people and the whole thing well interestingly <laughs> His jersey sold out on the NHL site, on the Philadelphia Flyers site, and on a couple other sports apparel sites that you could not find an Ivan Provorov jersey for sale anywhere. People bought them up. So... That's an indication, I think, of true public attitude about all of this wokeness that's being shoved down our culture's throat. But here's what a friend of mine pointed out over the weekend. He said, you know, you have all of these players who claim the name of Christ. You have all of these athletes who claim to be Christian. You see when a football player scores a touchdown, he points up to heaven. Or, you, or he crosses himself because he's Roman Catholic or Anglican. So you have people that are making these overtly Christian or at least theistic references. They talk about in interviews in magazines about how much their Christian faith means to them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it's, it's not uncommon 
to see, you know, especially the the on-field acknowledgments of God when something good happens on the field. And as I said, when something bad happens on the field, we saw all the prayer when that Bills player was injured. So we have this, you know, number of athletes who name the name of Christ. So my friend over the weekend said, where are they? You have a Christian retired coach, TV analyst, who is standing on Christian virtues and Christian beliefs and is being castigated for it. Where are all these Christian athletes coming out in support of him? You have a hockey player who is being castigated for taking a stand on his faith and refusing to take part in this, these pride festivities and refusing to um, affirm a homosexual lifestyle. And yet he, where are all these athletes coming out in support of him? We just don't see it. And I think it's, it's a, a big indication that there's a big difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. So we're not seeing these guys who have been talking the talk actually stepping out and walking the walk. And that's a shame. And it just tells you that, you know, we need to up our evangelistic, ex, uh, evangelistic efforts and not just take somebody's word for it that they're a Christian. This is something that, that has really taken hold in American evangelicalism for decades. When somebody says they're a Christian, we don't question it. That's not a good thing. Because what that means is there are a lot of people who are claiming to be Christians, who are never challenged on it, who are never presented with the true gospel that actually saves. And so they might even be going through life thinking they're Christian. Or they're going through life um, cynically using a claim of Christianity for some benefit, societal benefit. Um, now, I don't think claiming to be Christian is as beneficial society-wide as it once was. <laughs> it's now becoming uh, much more acceptable to dump on Christianity, um, whereas in earlier generations, many people claimed to be Christians because that was the quote-unquote safer position in society. All right. One last thing, or actually not a last thing, next to the last thing, penultimate thing, climate change. Last week we had the big uh, World Economic Forum or World Economic Council meeting. The World Economic Council or World Economic Forum? World Economic Forum. Anyway, the big meeting of the elites uh, in Davos, Switzerland, uh, all, this, all these people concerned about the environment flying in in their private jets and driving around in their big luxury automobiles uh, decrying the destruction mankind is doing to the environment with their airplanes and automobiles. Um, that was last week. And 
of course, as they do every year when they meet, and and you know, we had all the big environmental people there, uh, environmental elitists. We had uh, 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 John Kerry, who is the is uh, President Biden's environmental czar, dude. Don't you know? Um, which means he flies around the world on private planes, telling people how bad private planes are. Um, we had Al Gore was there, um, still pushing his climate change agenda. They even had an interview last week on one of the networks, the last week of the week before, with Dr. Paul Ehrlich, the author of 1968's The Population Bomb, a man whose every prediction was wrong, <laughs> yet he's still being trotted out. And uh, I heard in his interview, he said that uh, he doesn't think that he actually was dire enough in his warnings about overpopulation. What we're seeing here is the eschatology. And eschatology is the doctrine of the end times. Um, and every religion has to have an eschatology. What we're seeing in environmentalism is the eschatology of the religion of naturalistic materialism. And so this is the position of the naturalistic materialism. Man is going to wipe himself out, or some natural event is going to wipe man out. So either man does it to himself or nature does it to man. The, the scenarios for man doing it to himself is, and, and as I go through these, think about this. These are underlying themes of a great deal of science fiction. So these are the ways that mankind is going to wipe himself out. Overpopulation. We've all heard that. Uh, I've noted more than once that it should be frightening to us that the same people who were pushing certain medications be mandatory are the same people who say that we need to knock down the Earth's population by half or more. <laughs> so it's like they're trying to save lives? I don't think so. Um so overpopulation, this was, this was Ehrlich's uh, treatise in 1968 that, that you know, we would not be able to sustain this great population growth, that we were going to start starving to death. Food production would not be able to keep up, um, and we would be starving to death by the 1980. <laughs> He's right in 1968. They were, they were expecting mass starvation events by 1980. They were going to start in the 70s, and, and they were expecting it. Or pollution. <laughs> you know, just making the environment uninhabitable because of pollution. Not, not just that it would, you know, raise the or change the climate, but that it would, you know, poison the air and the water and everything. But that brings up the human effect on climate. Um, back in the 70s, and I remember this because I was, you know, I was a kid starting to pay attention to 
things that were going on in the world. In June 1974, I was not reading Time magazine. That was two weeks before my ninth birthday. But I remember science teachers in school talking about this. And what they were talking about in, in June 1974, Time Magazine came out with an article entitled Another Ice Age. And I think it was the cover story, if I remember correctly. And it was going on about, you know, how you know, Earth's history for billions of years has been mostly ice. And with just a few, that, that this modern warm period was an anomaly and that they were expecting another ice age to come that lasted when did they start talking about global warming i want to say it was in the it was in the 90s so the the ice age thing shifted in the 80s the climate climate uh catastrophe people shifted in the 80s from ice age to global warming and, of course, by 1992, you've got Al Gore as vice president of the United States, and he's Mr. Global Warming. That was uh, his big issue. And so, you know, so it was global warming. Now, you don't hear him talking about global warming much anymore. Now they just blanket it all with climate change so that whatever happens, they can throw up their hands and... and declare it to be absolutely horrible. So as a, that's that's the the and then the final mankind is going to wipe himself out is nuclear war. Now, these are all related, right? You notice these are the same groups of leftists who are you know now and and here's the thing, none of us are for pollution. But they have Every, everything's a crisis. There's no balance. There's no, well, some pollution is necessary for our survival. Yeah. Um, we're all going to have to burn something to, to stay warm in the winter. You know, we're going to burn uh, wood or coal or oil or something to stay warm in the winter. And even if you use electricity, that most electricity is still generated by burning something um, because it's an efficient means of, of energy. And so, I mean, I grew up wood burning stove in our house and that's how we heated our house. So dad and I, what I wouldn't give for another afternoon with my dad around the chopping block. Some of our best conversations were around that chopping block as we were chopping the wood for the winter. And, and putting the wood away in the in the woodshed for for the winter use and and just the the heat of a wood stove was just awesome there's a it's a, the the heat of of wood heat is a different kind of heat by that I mean it's it's a it's a it's a comfort factor above even above forced air gas heat that that wood heat that radiant heat off a wood stove there's just something about it that's just absolutely, uh, like I said, a comfort level above. 
And when we moved, this, this cracks me up. When we moved to Montana in 1977, every house in the area where we were living, which was right around Missoula, and, and we're talking in the city limits, every house had a wood-burning stove. And they still call Missoula hippie town. And so there's still an element of 1968 Haight-Ashbury in Missoula. But in 1977, it was not a hint. It was well-established. You had, we, we used to call them granolas. You had the back-to-nature people that were, you know, middle-aged hippies that had been in college in the 60s that were now, you know, in their 30s and and wanting to live off the land and, and all of that. And they all were in favor of wood-burning stoves because wood wasn't a fossil fuel. Wood was renewable. Burning wood was natural. Burning, you know, uh Coal or oil, that wasn't natural, but burning wood was natural, and wood smoke was much less dangerous than, than coal or oil. Or the, I remember this. And so every house had wood-burning stoves. Now, the Missoula Valley, because of the, the situation with the mountains and the climate, is susceptible to what we call heat inversions. And a heat inversion is a layer of cold, dense air lying on top of a layer of warm air, creating kind of a blanket. And when these heat inversions come in, it trapped all the wood smoke under that inversion layer. So from the ground to that inversion layer would just really, really get smoky. So I don't think we had been here more than a few years when they started having stage one air alerts and telling everybody not to use their wood stoves. And, and finally, the, the city of Missoula banned wood stoves. You couldn't have one in the city unless it was your only means of heat. Um, and then they slowly phased that out. And then it finally was highly efficient. Pellet stoves were okay, but not... You know, you couldn't just go out and chop wood and shove it in the in the wood fireplace. So I I would I witnessed that, you know. But nobody's for pollution. Yet at the same time, there's going to be a certain level of pollution that has to be permissible. Because otherwise, you know, like I said, you gotta burn something to stay warm. So you know, and to cook and all this, that, and the other thing. So nobody's for pollution. Nobody's for nuclear war. Um, none of these things, you know, there's, there's nobody out there advocating in favor of these things. But whenever you try to be realistic about, you know, and, and one thing, the whole nuclear war thing got flipped into the anti-atomic energy thing. You really want clean, plentiful electricity? Let's start building nuclear power plants. Nuclear power plants with liquid sodium reactors. And we could start generating clean, efficient, 
cheap electricity and get away from the fossil fuels. If that's what you really want, let's do it. But they don't want that. Um, their, their climate, thing, the whole World Economic Forum, it's all an excuse to seize control. It's all an excuse to, you know, control the little people, to make the world in their image. Um, they they want to be like God. Um, so that's the, the man-caused eschatology. One of those things is going to wipe us out, and it's always dot, 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 if we don't do something, meaning dot, 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 if you don't put us in charge. But then you also have, you know, nature's going to wipe us out. And these are things that we have nothing to, no control over at all, but it's still part of their eschatology that, you know, the sun is going to burn out. Um, and of course, those that, you know, astronomers and, you know, stellar people tell us that, you know, how that would work. It's not that the, the sun would burn out and go dark. The, right now, the sun is burning hydrogen. It's hydrogen fusion, keeping the sun burning. Well, if it runs out of hydrogen, because it, it's, I think it's making helium. So the, the hydrogen fusion makes helium. So as the hydrogen diminishes, the helium volume builds up. Well, if the hydrogen runs out and that fusion reaction stops, the sun, the gravity of the sun will take over because the fusion is what's keeping the sun from collapsing in on itself. So that fusion stops, the sun will begin to collapse in on itself until the temperature and density reach the point where, where helium will fuse. Well, once the helium fusion reaction begins, that'll push the sun out again, but it'll push it out much, much bigger. And the surface of the sun would be outside the orbit of the Earth. So the Earth would become a cinder, which sounds an awful lot like something in uh, one of Peter's epistles, if memory serves. So that's, you know, that's one of their scenarios of death. And, of course, nobody knows how much helium the sun, or how much hydrogen the sun has left, because you can't really get there to measure it, because it's really hot. Um, and then the other one is, of course, the, the famed sweet meteor of death, that some dinosaur killer asteroid is going to smash into the Earth and wipe us all out. And again, <laughs> these are all part of, you know, science fiction lore, right? Um, this, you know, the, the, the sweet meteor of death was, we had two, two big comet movies back in right around 2000. You had the, the, the one that tried to be scientific, which was Deep Impact, which was actually a pretty good movie. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, they tried to be realistic. They tried to be scientific. Um, but then you had, uh, what was the one with, uh, with Bruce Willis? Um, Armageddon. <laughs> you know, that one was not scientific. That's the high adventure but it, it, you know, they threw they threw any any attempt at scientific realism out the window for that one. Um, 
but hey, it had you know Aerosmith mu music and and uh, Bruce Willis. So what do you want? So you know, all of these things—the overpopulation, the pollution, climate change, nuclear war, asteroid impacts—all of these are staples of science fiction, which says something about science fiction. <laughs> Um, it's the entertainment arm of the religion of naturalistic materialism. I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to write a science fiction book. And one of the things that I wanted to do was have the astronauts, you know, obviously it'd have to be another star system because there's nothing in our solar system that will support life. Um, it's really kind of funny. You go back and read the the uh, science fiction from the 40s and 50s. And, of course, you know, they had Venus was a swamp world. It was hot, but it wasn't, you know, the massive temperatures that we found out it really was. And so you had, you know, Venus was this wet, swampy world. It was always, always cloudy, always rainy, muggy, you know, but habitable. And Mars was the cold, dying planet, but it had been civilized because you had the canals and all this, that, and the other thing. Of course, we now know there were no canals. And so, you know, you go back and read those old science fiction shows, you know, they had habitable places to go in our solar system, which we don't have. But uh, I always wanted to write a story where they would, you know, there'd actually be, they'd find life somewhere else. And it would be DNA-based plant life and animal life, no intelligent life. Because I do believe that uh, humanity is the only intelligent life that God created. But have life that was indistinguishable from life on earth as far as plants and animals or be different species you know but it but genetically it would be like gosh this is like the same thing we have on earth and of course you know because the whole universe was created by by god um but that was just that's neither here nor there all right why does none of this climate change stuff worry me and the reason is the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah at the end of the flood. Now, we think about the Noahic covenant and we think about, okay, the rainbow, the promise that God will never destroy the earth again by flood. That's the promise. And, and for too many of us, that's our entire understanding of the Noahic covenant. The Noahic Covenant is actually longer than that. It includes things like the death penalty for murder. <laughs> um, the Noahic Covenant is actually found in Genesis 8.20 through 9.17. I'm not going to read through the whole thing because I've already gone an hour. But I wanted to point out verse 22. Genesis 8.22 says... While all the days of the earth remain, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. 
okay? While all the days of the earth remain. So it says there, there is a, you know, there's a set number of days, okay, folks? The earth is going to end. But while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, that's planting and harvesting, cold and heat, that's summer and winter, and cold and heat and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease, okay? There's going to be weather. There's going to be a planting season and a harvesting season. There's going to be night and day. None of this is going to change until God's purpose for the earth is done. I'm not saying we abuse the earth. We are stewards of creation. We are to take good care of it. But we don't ignore it. We don't. We're allowed to use it. God gave it to us to use. God gave it to us to support life. And, and we are to use it. Mankind is not the disease on Mother Earth. Earth was made for man. And so until God's timing, we don't have to worry about, you know, everything ceasing. We're going to have summer and winter and seed time and harvest and, you know, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above to go with great is thy faithfulness lyrics, which part of this is drawn from this. So we see, you know, that, that God has established and, and the other thing is, you know, people, well, how's it going to end? You know, God tells us. <laughs> the Lord is going to return. And whether you believe in a millennial kingdom, as I do, or not, you know, whether it's real or symbolic or whatever, the Lord's going to return. He's going to judge mankind. This earth is going to be done away with. He is going to establish a new heavens and a new earth, and that heavens is not the, obey, the abode of God, that heavens is the sky. So he's going to a, a new heavens and a new earth, is you know, a new planet with an atmosphere where we will enjoy physical existence for all eternity. Um, and we'll have things to do. It's not going to be sitting on the cloud with a harp. There's going to be a restoration of creation. And that is going to be a glorious time. But it's going to be physical. It's going to be real. But it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth that will last forever. This heaven and this earth, this earth and this sky, you know, the old saying, nothing lasts forever but earth and sky. This earth and sky don't last forever. There will come a time. When God does away with them. But until the Lord returns, we're not going to destroy the world. Not with our cars, not with our nuclear weapons. Now, could there be a war? Yeah, sure. Could there be a bad war? Yeah, sure. Could atomic weapons be used in war? They already have been. Could happen. And it could be really, really bad. But it will not wipe out humanity and it will not destroy the planet. All right, finally, today in 1957, toy company Whammo introduced the Frisbee. So if you, like me, have spent hours and hours and hours 
throwing a Frisbee around. Today, 1957, was when the Frisbee was introduced. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for today. Remember, please, to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.